So this is a clue from a real case? Cool. Just ignore him. He's not a real PhD. Sons of the Lambs, mac and cheese, next. When your weekend's all spent up and you got Monday coming down the pike, sometimes all you need is a little comfort to get you through to Monday. Mac and cheese movies, where we believe in comfort food and comfort movies. You spook easily, Strong. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. How close to the way you're going to catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't speak easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing and arm. Man's a raging maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Hello, welcome to Mac and Cheese Movies. I'm Scotty Coffidge, and he's having an old friend for dinner, Chad Newman. Hello, hello. In honor of our movie, Sons of the Lambs, we have lamb chops. We couldn't find fava beans, so instead I got Bush's best sidekick beans, because Clarice and Hannibal are kind of like sidekicks. It's a Southwest zest pinto beans and a red chili sauce with cumin, jalapenos, and also had a nice Chianti. Um, I picked up some 100% natural grass-fed bone and lamb loin chops. Lamb raised without antibiotics, no added hormones, no preservatives. Lecter isn't going to get this if he's eating people. This is some really good meat. (laughs) That's good. I'm full of hormones and preservatives. Good. What, What are these sidekick beans like? They were okay. I mean, they were beans. They were a little bit spicy. When I... Serve them with the loin chops. The loin chops ended up being amazing. And the these beans kind of overpowered the taste of like okay. the lamb. So it's like I tried to eat the beans last just by itself. Um, because I didn't want it to ruin this loin chop that I had. Did you grill the chop? I did it in a, in a skillet. Um, nice. I did it. There were four loin chops, so it's like kind of smaller. I think the, I think I did I did lamb chops on another podcast a few years ago, and I did them on the grill. But they were really expensive. I got them from a butcher. They were big. These are smaller, so I got, so I was like, let's do this. Take them out about an hour. Let them get up to room temp. Open up the salt and pepper it, and then get the skillet up. A little bit of oil. And then while that's heating up, I'm putting together some butter, some thyme, 
and some garlic and mixing that up. And I put I put it on there for three minutes. And then when I flip them, I put the butter and the garlic and everything on there. So it's on there for like that three minutes after the turn. Yeah. And then you want to be like about 130, 130, 135 degrees when you pull it off. And then I wrapped it in foil for 10 minutes to let it rest. And oh man, I just want some stuff for the podcast. I cook it and I never make it again. This I think should be like a regular weeknight staple because it wasn't super expensive and it was like really easy to make in like less than 30 minutes. And That's great. so it was just like, it was so good. I was really kind of surprised it was so good. Do you think you'll skip the sidekick beans next time? Yeah, sidekick beans is not coming back. I mean, like a baked potato can easily get thrown in there. Yeah. I, I Googled it because I don't know what a fava bean looks like either. And they look kind of like lima beans. Do you like lima beans? I think I can eat them if they're giving them, given in front of me. But that's not my go-to at all. I can't remember the last time I did eat lima beans. I'm not uh, I'm not protesting them or anything, boycotting lima beans. It's interesting you you told me you had a hard time finding fava beans. Yeah, I'd go to I'd go to places and they would some places would be like we don't even know what the heck you're talking about. And it's like they obviously had not seen sounds of the lambs. So one thing that I I hope we get to is the influence or the effect of this movie and I I do wonder if what Signs of the Lambs did to the fava bean industry. Uh, I could see it going both ways. I could see it killing the industry, and I could see people thinking, hey, I need to try this out because I heard Anthony Hopkins say it. No press is bad press for fava beans, I think. I mean, up to that point, I'd never heard of a fava bean ever. In fact, I'm not even sure the first few times I saw this movie, I knew what exactly he was saying. <laughs> And a Chianti. What's a Chianti? It's a wine. It's an Italian wine. I got some of that, too. I got some of that, too. Um, I got a Castello di Albola Chianti Classico. Did you get it, like, at the gas station or what? I got this at United where I got everything else. And it was $12. It was not – the guy told me, like, this is not top shelf, um, but this is still really good. This is really just a, a notch below. Still really good. Um, I like that. I like someone not trying to upsell me on the highest thing. And yeah. this was really good. And this also was not overpowering. Like a Cabernet Sauvignon is like really good and dry and it can be overpowering. This kind of can go with any meal, I feel like. Which I think a lot of the stuff here with this meal is like this movie. Everything kind of fits together in concert with each other. That's a good segue. I like that. <laughs> that was really well thought out. So, first taste, first time you saw it, your relationship to it, and why is it a mac and cheese movie? So, I saw this in the movie theater in its original running, so 1991, so I was 11 or 12 years old, and um, it was playing, the theater doesn't even exist anymore in Wichita Falls, I think it's, the Cinemark is now. Yeah, it's like the Parker Square Theater, yeah, I saw saw it there too. And... um, I, I really had no memory as to why I agreed to go see this or whether I was enthusiastic about seeing it. My stepfather wanted to go see it, and so I remember being there with him. And uh, by the end of the movie, especially the the crescendo, I was – I don't know that I'd ever been so scared in a movie. 
And uh, yeah, so I being eleven or twelve, that seems that seems like a lot to put on eleven or twelve year old. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of stuff that really freaked me out in this movie. Yeah, and and we can talk about that. But that, yeah, that was the first taste. Being probably too young to experience this. Yeah, I I was so I was. You know, maybe ten years old when I saw this, and I saw this like when it was in the theater, like opening up my. I mean, I don't remember there being any trailers or any promotion. Like Orion Pictures was financially at the end, so it's not like they're going to be rolling out some big ad campaign for this. But I'm sure my parents were like, "Hey, it's Jodie Foster. Let's um, go see this movie." Did that mean something to you at ten years old? It's no, Jodie Foster. No, I didn't know who Jodie Foster was. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're just going to go see this movie. Um, and I don't think anybody knew who Anthony Hopkins was at this time. Um, I, I didn't. I mean, you know, he. I read that he viewed this as kind of like, all right, either I'm going to make it big with this or I'm not. I'm only going to do kind of smaller stuff. He was in The Elephant Man, but I don't think he got the hype from The Elephant Man. I think John Hurt did. So. Yeah, this was a make or break deal, so, I think, so, for Anthony Hopkins. So we see this movie. This movie's awesome. But, like, you know, it came out in February, and you just kind of forget about it. You kind of forget, you know, it wasn't like these other 1991 movies, like Terminator 2, that was, like, promoted for months, had trading cards, a Guns N' Roses song, you know, right. all, all this stuff. It's um, it's like this movie just showed up. And, you know, Lecter is good and you don't even realize how good he is in this film. Like you don't even know, Hey, this is going to be one of the greatest villains of our lifetimes. Um, and, and to that point, I don't think I realized after seeing it, how little he's actually in the movie. He's only in the movie like 20 minutes yeah, or something. Yeah. I think it, yeah. It's like, like, I think it's like 17, 15. I mean, it's like some crazy low, but he looms over the whole thing. Yeah. He's kind of always present, even just because his that performance is so magnetic and and I, iconic. It's, and even at the time, it's like archetype now. Archetype, archetype. I think it's a hard C. Okay, archetype. Archetype. I mean, he. I mean, he's. It's Han Solo. He's Han Solo. That's like what this kind of villain is. All you know. After this movie, we have all these kind of killers who are sophisticated and smart and kind of all this stuff where I think before this, a lot of killers were just like fucking crazy. Right. Right. And just terrifying. You know, yeah. Like more slasher types, Mm -hmm. you know, just wild killers. And, uh, I think that speaks to the influence of this. There's, I think there's a lot of stuff, some, some stuff that you and I've seen and we really like that would not exist, but for, this movie and how successful it was. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then later when it starts getting the Oscar buzz, cause like you, we'd really kind of forgotten about this movie by the time the Oscars roll out the next year. And then like everybody has kind of seen this movie. And I remember this might be the first Oscars I saw because I remember Billy Crystal coming out and he has like the, he's in the stretcher. And he's oh, got yeah. and he's got the mask on, and he like takes it off, and he walks up to Anthony Hopkins, and he's like, "I'm having a few friends over for dinner. I'd love for you to come over." And like, um, and then and then I think they stopped doing that kind of thing because it was such a dead giveaway that this was going to be winning Best Picture, and uh-huh. and then but this is like the the only horror movie to have won Best Picture, 
And then, like, it, it's one of the only movies that won that wins best director, best picture, best actor, best actress, best screenplay. Right, the top five. Yeah, it won the big five. Um, that's, and I, I like that you you bring up that it's a horror movie because honestly, over the years, so what has it been? Thirty years since this movie came out. Yeah, it won. Bam. Um, I don't in in thinking about it, you know, just kind of processing it. When people say, "What's the scariest movie you've seen?" It was real easy to say, "Well, Silence of the Lambs," particularly the you know the big part at the end. But I don't know that I ever really thought of it as a horror movie. I thought, well, maybe it's more of like a thriller. And watching it for the podcast today, I was thinking, well, so there's not a mystery. There really isn't a mystery. We know who the killer is. And we learn throughout why he's doing it. We're really watching this unfold. So it, it kind of reconvinced me that, no, this is a horror movie. Because horror movies don't really have a lot of mystery to them. You're just watching things unfold. And that's really what we're doing at this one. Uh, but it's it's not a horror movie like horror movies are made today. Or, or really even horror movies were made in the wake of this. Uh, or copycat type movies. This um, this movie has a lot of restraint. I think that's what makes it great. Yeah, uh, you'd sent me an art that interview, the roundtable thing with Jonathan Demme and the screenwriter and maybe the producer. And Jonathan Demme name checks Alfred Hitchcock a few times in that in that roundtable discussion. And yeah, I think that's right. There's because of the restraint. Alfred Hitchcock had a lot of restraint in his stuff, and. There's a ton of restraint when, but we don't, but when you come out of it, you don't really think that you think, holy cow, I just saw some wild stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But watching it, especially again, you know, now after all these years, oh, there's so much that they didn't show us that we just see Clarice's reaction or we see other people's reactions. And, uh, so much of the violence is really off screen yeah. So that when you do actually see some violence, even when Hannibal is, you know, when he escapes and he's brutalizing those two uh, police officers, they don't really show that. It's just it's just it's the close up of him and you right. see him hitting. You don't see like them getting just their faces smashed in or whatever. And we don't see the, them cut up. We just see the after effect. And I think in terms of filmmaking – uh, not mentioning the acting, but the direction and the cinematography, that's the brilliance there is the restraint, I think. Yeah, that's why I think that's why this movie is everlasting and immortal and a movie like Kiss the Girls isn't. I love that you think of that you mentioned Kiss the Girls because that's that's the kind of movie I was thinking of that came in the wake of this. Uh, even I've only seen I think I've only seen the Hannibal the sequel Hannibal once. I think I've seen Red Dragon once. Did we see that? We, we saw Red Dragon together. Yeah. And I think I think both of those movies were too much. I watched Hannibal last weekend. It was on TV. Yeah. It's it's a total mess. It is like tonally, it's all over the place. Plot-wise, it's kind of all over the place. They have Julianne Moore instead of Jodie Foster. And it's it's not good. But then I was thinking, 
the purist in me is like, they should never do, they should never have done a sequel to this. They should never have done another movie. Um, and then I was, you know, I'm 41 years old now. And like, I feel like if I was Ridley Scott and the studio was like, just throwing all this money at me to try to make this movie, I'd be like, all right, let's give it a shot. Um, right. I don't think, I, I think I'd probably sell out and try to do it. Yeah. Same, I mean, same with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. He's, you know, he's probably like, well, I, I'm going to make a ton of money on this. Uh, he probably did not make a ton of money on Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't blame them for it, but those movies, and it's probably because Jonathan Demi wasn't involved, uh, but they don't have the restraint or the discipline that this movie yeah. really had. Yeah. So I read, uh, I think it was from that roundtable interview as well. They, they had shot and even included it in the initial cut, uh, this sequence of, of uh, Crawford and Clarice being fired, like kicked off the case, her getting kicked out of the Academy even. And Jonathan Demi felt so like, oh yeah, this is it. And then he showed it to somebody. Is it William Goldman? Is it Goldman or Gold- Goldman? Goldman, Goldwyn, yeah. something like that. And he said, you need to lose this part. And he was reluctant to do so, but he decided, well, let's give it a shot. We'll cut all that. And then realized, holy cow, he's right. This movie is way better without that. And I think it is. I think this movie is great for what it doesn't give us because it requires – I think this is why, especially for an 11- and 12-year-old kid, it's so frightening is because my imagination got to run wild. You know, uh, when Clarice is fumbling around in the dark, seeing that for the first time is incredibly yeah. tense. Yeah. Because you're thinking there's there's mention of mutilation and all this kind of stuff. He's going to mutilate her. This is not going to go well. And it's, even though, you know, at, in your early 40s, you've seen a lot of movies, we can say, well – formulaically it's got to have some sort of an ending it's not going to end on this totally dour note uh but watching it you know for the first second third time the fact that you the that's not spoken you imagine you're we've kind of almost become characters in the movie itself because of what we bring to it and and imagining how terrible this is going to be you know uh dr chilton who I think it's one of the, honestly one of the more despicable characters in the movie. Yeah, um, him kind of saying these introductory lines about Hannibal sounds way worse than anything that we actually see Hannibal do. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem with Han- the movie Hannibal and Red Dragon is it shows us all that rather than letting us imagine all that, mm-hmm. or at least they problem with it. Doctor Chilton is such a dick, and at first he's like, "Hey." <laughs> um, the city can be real nice if you have the right guide. And she's like, no, I got to get back. And then he's like, oh, well, Crawford sent you, you know, you're just his taste. Um, But then when Chilton's like, Lecter sees me as some sort of nemesis. And it's like, he does not. Hannibal Lecter does not see you as a a nemesis, Chilton. Right. In fact, he mentions um, after Miggs dies and Clarice comes to interview Hannibal then and all of his artwork, his drawings Mm -hmm. have been taken away. Uh, you notice that there's like this televangel- yeah. televangelist show going and Hannibal makes this comment. Dr. Chilton loves his petulant punishments or something like that. Some, something along those lines. Hannibal doesn't view this guy as a nemesis. He's not on his level. He's just some little annoyance that he has to deal with. 
which which is why you know Chilton for a fictional character if you were to ask him how important are you to this story of course he thinks he's insanely important to this story when he when he's on the steps of the courthouse or something he's giving some sort of comments to the news reporters and he's like I have a special uh, insight into yeah. his m- intellect and his mind <laughs> and how he works. And the name is Chilton. And yeah, he spells that, it out. He spelled, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, he's, he's a buffoon, but he's still villainous. And, and so these comments kind of made me wonder about two things. Um, one, do you root for Hannibal Lecter in this movie? Like to get out? Yeah, I mean, what what, do you, what is your hope with him? What do you want to see him do in this movie? You want him to get away, right? Yeah, yeah. So why is that? Why do we, I mean, he's done just as terrible things as Buffalo Bill, maybe even worse because he seems to be very aware of what he's doing. Why do we end up rooting for him to escape? Well, he's helping our, our protagonist. He's helping Clarice. Okay. He's And I think... With all there's all the sexism in this movie with her, and he's not like about that, but he does like cut her down like you're just like one generation away from poor white trash. And I can tell, I can tell, and like, um, just by your accent, your affectation, like, like what you're wearing. But that's it, there isn't this other stuff where it's like, hey, we can't get we. There's a woman in here. I need to talk to you boys or whatever, or to kind of all the the. the Sexism is like runs throughout. Lecter isn't like that. And he's trying to help her. He and he's not gonna like just give everything up because then it just that's gonna be a win for Crawford and all those other dudes. Um Yeah, I like that. I think I think that's a really, a really important insight into this movie. Um I totally agree. Hannibal is he may be the only person in the movie who doesn't underestimate Clarice. Everyone else, everyone else looks down on her. Um, and that's, that's one thing I noticed, the way they shoot Clarice in this movie. Jodie Foster, she's smaller than everybody in this movie. The camera angles are always kind of pointed down at her. Uh, when they're doing that in the, is the coroner's office, when they had found the, the woman yeah. there doing the examination of her body. Um, when all those sheriff's deputies or whatever branch of law enforcement they are, they're all just so unimpressed with her and looking down on her. She even has to – I felt so much for her when she says, all right, we have to do things for her and y'all go on and get out of here. And then she has to repeat it. Go on. We'll take care of her. Um, she seems so impotent in those moments. And Hannibal seems to be the only one who does not view her that way. He can sum her up, as you said, you know – Talks about her shoes and her cheap handbag, her accent. But but as they have these interviews, he really – I wouldn't say he views her as an equal because I don't think he does that. I think he always is above everybody. Um, but but he does see her as someone of value. You know, at the end on that phone call, he says, the world is better with you in it. And nobody has said anything like that to her. Even when when she graduates from the academy and Jack Crawford comes to shake her hand, you know, I couldn't help but thinking of something Hannibal had asked her. Do you think Jack Crawford thinks about having sex with you? And 
she's like, well, that doesn't interest me. But Hannibal's hitting on something that I think she, if she hadn't thought about it up to that point, I think she thinks about it now because when Jack Crawford, even when he's congratulating her on, on graduating at the end, he shakes her hand and his hand kind of lingers there. It's not, it seems like it's not purely professional. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that element of sexism is a massive theme in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like at the, like at the, uh, the original opening of this film was going to be like the fake drug bust they have, like at the Academy. And they take, they took that out and it's just her running. It's her running the course by herself. She isn't with the other students. And that's her, the whole film is like, she's alone. She's alone with Lecter. She's alone with Buffalo Bill. Like every step of the way, she's not with Jack Crawford. She's not with other people. When she's opening up that storage unit, she's by herself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great observation. Um, And then when she tells Lecter about her father, her father dying, she said when he died, he was her whole world because her mother died when she was even younger. And when her dad died, she's, she says, I had nothing. And so they send her, I mean, can you imagine to have so little family that you have to go to some cousin out in across the country and she runs away alone. She feels alone while she's there. Uh, the rancher, I mean, nobody has any pity or empathy for this little girl. He's so mad that she took one of the lambs that he, he sends her to an orphanage where again, she's alone. So yeah, I think that solitude, um, ultimately breeds her strength, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she She's willing to be with Lecter alone. She's willing to be uh, in that house where, you know, pretty quickly she learns this is Buffalo Bill. Um, yeah, she's, will- she's willing to be alone. She's, she's something of a lone ranger there. Uh, I read, I think I read somewhere that Jodie Foster summed the movie up of this is one woman trying to save another woman and looking at it through that prism. I mean, this is, it's a pretty powerful movie in terms of what it says about women, I think. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think to me, this is the Jodie Foster movie. Yeah, like, for sure. I mean, just as much as it's Anthony Hopkins movie and Anthony Hopkins character, like when they try to, Julianne Moore was Clarice. I was like, no. I was like, kind of, kind of Hannibal. I was like, they don't have Jodie Foster for this. Like, what, how could this movie even be any good? And I, and I, I read that initially, Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster were all interested in doing it. They wanted to see, you know, uh, when the author finished the book, he sent the manuscript to them, and so they were very interested. But they all decided. This goes in a direction we didn't anticipate, and this seems – I think the word that I read in a couple of quotes from them was lurid. It's its just too much. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I think when you – I think when they – you know, hopefully a long time from now, but whenever they do that in-memoriam montage of Jodie Foster, uh, Sounds of the Lambs is what she'll be remembered for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then just, af- after this, she's able to go do, you know, she directs movies. Right. She was in Contact, you know, lead, you know that Robert Zemeckis film. She's in Nell, which like, I'm not, I'm not like a big fan of Nell or anything, but I mean, 
she's getting a di- she was getting like star vehicles for her that for projects she wanted to do. So is this the height of her power? I think absolutely. It really positions her to do great stuff. Yeah. And one thing, um, so I was commenting to Lacey about this watching it. Um, so Jodie Foster, I know she's not supposed to be. I'd read that Jonathan Demi originally wanted Michelle Pfeiffer mm-hmm. for the movie. Yeah. And the thought was, well, her beauty may be distracting. Uh, and I'm not saying Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer look alike or anything, but but Jodie Foster does look pretty in this movie. Yeah. She's yeah. she's not um you know it's it's not boys don't cry. I mean yeah. she but, but it's not um it's not distracting, it's not overpowering. And I don't know if Michelle Pfeiffer I think it's it's probably an okay movie. It's probably a good movie, but it's not this. I think Jodie Foster she brings to this character this great strength so that even when she is being kind of run over by people, uh, she's not going down mm-hmm. and, and it's really in a subtle way. Um, you know, when she's, uh, again, when Hannibal has been moved and he's in the, not in the glass enclosure, but the bars, uh, the place from where he ultimately escapes when she kind of sneaks in to have that final interview with him and she, even when she seems so desperate, and she really does, when she says, you know, tell us, how do we find him? Please tell me. Um, she really seems desperate, but she's never weak. She's always strong. And um, I guess maybe the only real, I don't know, it's, it's this really great balancing act because she's so strong, but yet there is vulnerability there. You know, she's willing to tell Hannibal about what growing up was like and how and how emotional that made hearing those lambs being slaughtered, you know, how that made her. Uh, it's really a complex character and she's and she nails it. I don't I don't know that Michelle Pfeiffer or anybody else could have done it. No. And um, have the same. Did you read yeah. Meg Ryan? Yeah, what? I can't No. No. Not Meg Ryan. Like this, this movie gets so elevated. It's like such, it's like a horror. It's like a horror movie. But this is, it's got such great value. And I guess that's that's the director. That's the, these performances. That's the cinematographer. Everything looks incredible. And even when you're looking at it now, it doesn't lose anything. Being thirty years old, it, you know, it has. I think it, the only way it feels dated is just because of. The cars are old and the fact, you know, the clothes look 30 something years ago. Um, but the dialogue's not dated. They don't, uh, this is before, if they did this movie now, and it was supposed to be set, you know, contemporary times, there'd be all this technology involved. And the fact that there's not now one thing when she says at the end there, when she's comes to Buffalo Bill's house and she says, may I use your phone? And I thought, man alive, Thank goodness that would not be a situation today. There's no needing to borrow anybody's phone. You know, your people would know exactly where you are at, you know, at all times with your, with your smartphone and things. Um, but yeah, I think they really managed to make this timeless. In the, uh, like the big cross cutting scene where like you think that they're about to hit Buffalo Bill's house, but then they have the wrong house. And she's in right. the right house. And right. so 
the FBI has just been foiled, um, probably by their own logic and planning. But right. Clarice got it. Clarice has got it, but she, these people are wherever the hell they are. Um, she's alone on this. No one's coming to save her. Right. And I, I, I even thought when she's going through the house and, you know, she finds the, the well or the little the pit and she sees that Catherine is down there. Um, I thought, well, she, so she's got a gun. So she can, and she's, and I thought, man, how smart she's closing all the doors. And I thought, yeah, that's really smart. And then I thought if she's, if she were to like barricade in there, nobody's going to know yeah. that she's there. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's, she has to, the only way that they get out is if she kills Buffalo Bill. That's it. There's because, you know, today you're sending texts, you're sitting, you're making phone calls, you know, you're, you're, you're alerting somebody I'm down here. It's, I found her. We're in this, we're in the right place. But man, how much scarier 30 years ago when mm-hmm. you don't have any of that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really something. Uh, there was a, so isn't that the girl's name, Catherine? Yeah. Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. So when Catherine's like, when Jodie Foster comes in and she's like, Catherine, uh, you know, I'm with the FBI, you're safe. And then Catherine starts like cussing at her. Yeah. He's like, don't leave me what? here. You motherfucking bitch. <laughs> right. And I, I remember seeing that initially and being like, how ungrateful. What is, what is wrong with this woman? But, you know, of course, like, even Catherine, she plays that well, that actress. I'm looking at on Google right now. Her name is Brooke Smith. Good for her because she's really like, that's probably very realistic. Like, there's no politeness or courtesies in a life or death save me situation. Yeah, like, like, a, like a, okay, I'll, I'll just be here. Um, right. Yeah, right. I mean, it's you know what? This guy is crazy. He took me. You're messing around. Like, you're going to get taken, too. You're going to be in the well right. with me. Like, let's... Exactly. Exactly. You're either going to be killed up there or in the well with me. And no matter what, that does not help me. <laughs> I don't need a roommate. Uh, I need to get out of here. Another thing, and I thought I thought of you because you're such a dog lover. So she gets Precious down in the well with her. Yeah. And she's, you know, that's that's a real bargaining chip for her, for Catherine with Buffalo Bill. And she's threatening to further injure this dog. When the FBI finally comes and we see her, you know, walking out of the house, she's holding Precious so close to her, like almost as if that's like her security blanket now. And it made me think, man, I bet in a trauma situation like that, she probably does latch onto that dog and she probably keeps that dog. I, I always thought that she kept the dog too. Yeah. Uh, Even though thought, it's like this traumatic thing you're going to be dealing with the rest of your life. Like you would take, you would take the dog. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, and I, and I love that Jonathan Demi had that little, you know, five to 10 second scene to show her coming out clutching this dog. And I wondered, man, I wonder what direction he gave her because that's su- that's such a good thing. It te- I mean, it, it telegraphs to us again. It forces us as the audience to imagine what what comes next. Well, I think she keeps this dog, and it becomes a, c- a companion to her. Mm-hmm. Um, an additional thought as a so a question for you as a little kid. Okay, so you're ten or ten years old watching this with Walter and Mary Helen when Buffalo Bill is finally doing his big reveal dance. Yeah. 
Did that freak you out as a little kid? It freaked me out. And like, I, I didn't know what was happening and I didn't uh-huh. know it was a tuck. I didn't know it was a tuck until like later. <laughs> I thought maybe he didn't have genitalia. Um, oh, okay. And then like, I think later it was like, yeah, it's a tuck. And I was like, oh, okay. W- wow. Um, cause you know, it's on cable all the time or something. And then like some, I think someone like our friend Brian Avery was like, yeah, it's a tuck. Like, <laughs> Uh, that's, um, I think that's a, I, I don't even want to qualify it. It's an upsetting scene. It's very upsetting because when you're not prepared for that, you know, I didn't know what a transsexual was. Yeah. I never heard that. And watching it this time, I actually kind of went in with this question in my mind. I wonder how they, how do they treat this idea of being transsexual in this movie? Uh, is it? And and to be honest, they don't vilify it. Hannibal Lecter says very clearly he's not a real transsexual. He's just someone who hates himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's not. You know, he's not experiencing some sort of gender dysphoria. He's he just wants to mutilate himself and become something different. Uh, but so yeah, that that scene when he with the tuck was very confusing and upsetting to eleven or twelve year old Chad. And, and I think it still has this, I think it's meant to be upsetting. The, the, Shocking. Like anytime I hear that song, is it called Goodbye Horses? Something like that. I it's, was going to go ahead. I want to ask you something about that song the, the, too. The song is great, but you can't not be thinking about that scene anytime you hear that song. I think even the band who made that song probably thinks of Silence of the Lambs. Who, so who's the band? Do you know who the band was who did that song? I don't know. No, I don't know. So my question was, and I wonder how many artists or bands turned down letting their song be for that scene. Because mm. I was thinking like, honestly, I think I misremembered for a long time. I think I misremembered it as like a David Bowie song. Mm-hmm. And and then of course, it's not of course a David Bowie song, but I thought, man, it has nothing to do with the transsexual thing. It's the it's how uh, how powerful and impactful this movie can be, and the visual. You know, you know, whoever their music supervisor was, they had to know. Okay, whatever song we play during this scene is going to be forever tied to this scene. So it can't be fame. It can't be um, under pressure. You know, it can't be any of these songs. It has to be something that's like that has no baggage with us. Exactly. And and I think for the for the musician itself, it wouldn't surprise me if they looked at it the same way. Like, uh, yeah, I don't want, you know, I don't want anything from Hunky Dory being tied to this movie. Uh, this is a really upsetting movie. Find something that may be inspired by the Bowie glam kind of uh, scene, but isn't. You know, it's not Lou Reed walking a wild side. It's not Iggy Pop. It's it's whoever it is doing this song. Because that becomes uh, a permanent fixture in the song. And I think definitely when I saw the movie, which I mean, I was young, so maybe I don't, I didn't have like, I'm not like a historian of music at that point, but like I'd never heard a song kind of like that before. And that just went with everything else that's like so weird and foreign in, in the viewing in that scene. Oh, that, so that's an interesting point you bring up every, Everything about Buffalo Bill does seem strange and foreign. So that he's wanting to make a suit out of these women. I mean, I can't relate to that. How strange is that? Um, Even Hannibal Lecter is so strange. 
But then the location, when Clarice is out, you know, she's at the funeral, she's at the coroner. It's so working class and so normal. Mm -hmm. You know, there's everything is gray. Everything is just concrete. Um, It's that is so familiar, you know, that. um, So it, it has this interesting contrast with these two serial killers and the mundane world in which they find themselves. And even, I mean, you know, Clarice doesn't, she doesn't wear flashy makeup. She doesn't wear really memorable clothing. Her clothing kind of blend into the scenery around her. Uh, It's, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that, but there is that contrast of the world of these serial killers in the regular world. Yeah. And maybe that's just it. Maybe that's just, it just highlights. Maybe that was, yeah, maybe that was a cinematic choice. I'm sure it all was. The kind of the aberration or Mm -hmm. anomaly of it all that regular people aren't like this, but some people are and when they are, they stand out like crazy. Yeah. And how much do you want to tell your wife? Your wife is a real helper too. She likes to help people. Don't help some guy with his couch in the that, van in the parking lot. What did, what did I would I like have this in my notes. Shannon would help anyone moving a sofa. And Shannon would probably get other people to help move the sofa as well. Oh hey, hey, can you help us with this sofa really quick? And like get two more people in the you know, in this well. Um I mean I'd I I mean you know me, you know I'd be like I don't trust you. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. You have to. You have to. You have to call somebody. I don't know. Um, but peer pressure is big. I mean, you'll do things your spotty sense tells you not to do because you don't want to be rude or be like a dick to somebody with a cast. And he feeds right. into all that. He knows that. And we know that Catherine is like a good person because she wanted to help this guy with the the sofa. And then and like the singing, fact that she gets in the Tom van. Penny. Yeah. She's seeing Tom Petty in the car. Yeah. She's, you know, she's, yeah, she's, she's a small town girl. <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, there's some, there's some great uh, precautions to take. Never get in the, if, if someone's moving the furniture, if you feel like you need to help them, don't get in the van, have him get in the van. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, nowadays, I guess you would just say, you know what, let me go grab some friends and we'll be down to help or something. Uh or you just call the police now. I don't know. There's some guy that looks like <laughs> Buffalo Bill moving a couch by himself. Come get him. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's um, – there, there's a lot of precaution stuff. I think even for Clarice. So and I noticed this. You know, they, There's a kind of a training montage where she's going through classwork, et cetera, and she and a male partner come in and like – to disarm some situation. And then all of a sudden you see the gun come out like on the left. And he's like, you're dead. You're dead. Starling. What did you not do? And she's like, oh, I didn't secure the area to my left. And, uh, so, okay. Even with a teammate, she's not perfect. And she's FBI. I mean, and she's FBI. And then she's in this house by herself with no teammate. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that probably adds to the suspense as well as, uh, she's not, the she doesn't execute things flawless. She's not. Uh, who am I thinking of from Police Academy? Who like knows all the rules? Mahoney. Where is she? 
Mahoney? I guess it's Mahoney. <laughs> who's, who's, who's in Police Academy? Oh, Those are all the rules. Um, Tackleberry? Tackleberry. Yeah. She's not Tackleberry. Uh, or who's the blonde in Police Academy? Callahan? Tall? Callahan. She's not Callahan. She's going to the house by herself. And you know already uh, she has she has a blind spot. Yeah. With some of these things. Did um, you- in the in the house, a couple things about Buffalo Bill's house. Number one, he's got that well in his house. Did he build that? Like, what? How do you get that in your house? I think that's a great question. I was wondering myself. Like, did he? Did they build this house around a water well, or it's? You have? Do they go down like three? Is this like on a third level? Some basement yeah. level? Yeah. I'm sure now you have me wondering, like, what is the realtor telling people? <laughs> it's like, oh, now there's a third level and they're OK. There's kind of a creepy, dried out water well. And you, you if you want to store people there or, you know, boxes, you can, uh, you know, whatever. You, it's your it'll be your well. But I, I don't know the answer to that question. I've never heard of anybody building a house around a water well or digging one in their basement. There's this movie called Barbarian out right now. Yeah. And it's like an Airbnb kind of horror movie. And okay. ju- you find out like in act two that Justin Long is an actor. And he's in this huge kind of sex scandal. So he's trying to liquidate some of the stuff he has. He has some real estate in, Det- in Detroit. And okay. he goes into this house where all this like stuff had happened. He hadn't done anything with his house in decades. He just like owns it. Um, I think his family owned it. And he finds like all these like kind of crawl space and all this all these like kind of secret dungeon rooms and stuff. And he's like, you he, he, he think he's like terrified, but he's like googling. Does like basement like dungeon stuff equate to more square footage? And it doesn't, <laughs> but it does some other formula. It does. He's like. Yeah, so he's like going down there and measuring all these rooms where there's all this dried blood and cages and everything, so he can like get a better deal on this house that he's going to try to sell. And that is something Clarice Starling would never do. <laughs> no, and and maybe maybe the next owner of the house will find that and be like, "Oh my god, look at all this! <laughs> look at all this storage!" There's a Nazi poster in Buffalo Bill's house. I like zoomed in on it, like on the door. Um, it was something about like America. And it was about, and it had like the it was it says America, open your eyes, and it had like some Nazi symbols in it, and it had like I think the George Washington dollar bill on it. Well, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. Um... I, I'm, I'm guessing it's subtle, right? It's. I mean, you. I mean, I like when I was watching it, I was like, "What's that? What's that poster say?" Because it was like, I think a picture of like someone's like eyes being like covered up, and then uh-huh. there was like the George Washington stuff, and I was like, "What does that say?" I had to freeze frame it, and that's what it wow. said. And then there was like a little swastika on it. So, whereas if they made the movie, if they remade the movie today, that stuff would not be subtle. That stuff would be very yeah. overt. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, so we'd, we'd mentioned at the beginning this the idea of its influence. So certainly you don't get Kiss the Girls without this. Um, do you get Seven without this? 
maybe maybe seven doesn't get made because they're not like oh well sounds the land's made all this money let's go ahead and yeah we'll green light this yeah um and maybe andrew kevin walker doesn't write the script yeah um i think of another david fincher project mindhunter mm-hmm. the netflix series i think you don't get i think you can erase all of the dark procedurals that show you know um how they're doing this profiling on criminal minds and serial killers. I think we don't, all that would be at least be delayed because I think Hannibal Lecter is the first profiler that we, at least that I recall Mm -hmm. coming, you know, coming in contact with like that. Yeah. And is there, are there more movies that kind of follow a similar formula where you have like the, the, a female detective put with some kind of like psycho, but who can help. There's like, I think there is, there's definitely like the bone collector with Angelina Jolie where she's out doing stuff. And like Denzel Washington's like, I think paralyzed or something. And he's a cop or something, but he's kind of being a guide for her. So in kiss the girls is, I don't, it's been a while since I've seen that. Morgan Freeman's in it, right? Yeah. Is a woman the detective? Ashley Judd, I think. Ashley Judd, okay. And then wasn't there a was there a sequel to that movie? I think there was. I don't I don't think I saw it though. Sim- similar formula though, right? Mm-hmm. Another yeah. woman is kind of on this impossible case to solve with him. Um I think I think it's an incredibly influential movie beyond even, I mean, you know, so much so that there's a term for it. I can't remember what it is where people misremember lines from movies, but it's kind of like in mass, everybody uh-huh. misremembers Luke. I am your father. Mm-hmm. And that's not the actual line from the movie. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, um, I think the hello Clarice mm-hmm. is, is like that. If you say that to anybody, they'd say, Oh, it's from sounds of the lambs, but that, that line actually isn't in this movie. It's not his actual line. I mean, it It really, yeah, it's an iconic movie. Yeah. Remix the ingredients. Gene Hackman was going to direct this. Gene Hackman was going to be Hannibal Lecter. Um, what do you think about him as this character? So I, I do like Gene Hackman. I've not seen anything from Gene Hackman that tells me he could have made this character very memorable. It'd be, just, it'd, just, be, it'd be like Kiss the Girls. It'd just be like another movie that came out. Right. I think I think Hannibal Lecter is probably tough and hard, but uh, Anthony Hopkins is kind of like serpent-like. I mean, if you were to say, what's the devil like? He's probably a lot like Hannibal mm-hmm. Lecter, kind of charming mm-hmm. and seductive. Uh, but still can be really penetrating and piercing and all this stuff. I don't see Gene Hackman doing that. Gene Hackman's kind of always grouchy. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like, is, is Hannibal Lecter just a grouch the whole time? <laughs> He's just put out by having to deal with anybody? Get it together, grouch. Exactly. <laughs> but then, you know, I guess kind of a strange irony there is that Gene Hackman initially bought the rights or bought half – he went – Partners with, I think, the De Laurentiis guy who bought the other half of the rights. 
of the book. And um, he did Mississippi Burning. And then after after that, he was kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do anything with violence in it. And his daughter, I think, was... His daughter was like, you can't do this movie. I think she'd read the book. Yeah. Yeah. And um, have you read the book? I haven't read no, the book. No, I haven't book. read the book. Um, kind of scared to. I don't know. I mean... It's probably, it's probably fine. I mean, like, you know, kind of like you said, the, the impact of this movie, we don't have the Dexter TV show without this movie. Oh, yeah, for So sure. it's like, I mean... Okay. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. So any, anywhere where you have a really horrific villain that you're rooting for, I don't know that we get that without this movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, we've, been, we've watched all these shows and everything now, so I think the book now is probably pretty tame yeah that's probably right it's probably better than a confederacy of dunces it, it, might, it might be book club <laughs> maybe a faster read um no i don't see gene hackman and i don't and like um he said well well bobby will do it bobby will do um lecture it's like well is he talking about robert de niro is he talking about robert duvall is he talking about robert redford like who is he talking and then when i think about de niro i just think about like taxi driver or I think like Meet the Fockers. I don't think about him in this role. You know, he was – I mean it's a very different character. Um, another movie though that was pretty scary was De Niro's remake of Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I mean I guess De Niro is probably more imaginable than Gene Hackman. Robert Duvall, I'm not seeing him do anything like this. Um I think I think it was honestly. I mean, come on, wasn't it perfect casting? It was. It was. It was so masterful. We can't even think of somebody else in it doing a good job. Right. Yeah. Robert Redford. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I no. I can't picture Robert Redford doing it at all. Maybe he and Meg Ryan are in some alternate universe version of this movie. Mm-hmm. They fall in love in the end. I don't know. Do you know Chris Isaac is in this movie? Lacey pointed it out. I did not know that, but when they're as one of the cops, yeah, right? as one of the cops, like when they're in, you know, the elevator, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So like, Lacey said, <laughs> is that Chris Isaacs? When I saw him, when I see him every time, I go, oh, I wanna fall in love. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, wicked game, wicked game. Chris Isaacs is in it. <sighs> Another note I have about Buffalo Bill: the nipple ring looks painful. It does, and and. Uh, I'm glad you bring that up because the nipple ring also was startling to me. 1991. I mean, I certainly didn't know anybody personally who had a nipple ring, but yeah, it's kind of like, Ooh, this guy's dangerous. Yeah. He's got nipple rings yeah. and weird tattoos that aren't, you know, for wanting to be a woman, he still has these strange tattoos on his hands. Um, I didn't realize Scotty that when he's dressing up, He's putting on like the scalp of one of his victims. Oh, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm really super I, I getting only, that either. Yeah. I only noticed it because the, it has like the outline and it's not, it looks like kind of jagged, like mm-hmm. someone cut this. Yeah. This movie is like one of Orion's like last films and they didn't release it in December. They knew oh, this movie was great. They knew the movie was great, but they didn't have the gas to do anything with it. And Dances with Wolves was coming out in December, so they didn't want to compete with it. But then because 
it has been on video. They were able to give a videotape to people, like for Oscar season. No other movie oh. coming out had the video, so they were like the first ones to do the screener. That's wow. That's good for them. And I didn't even know. I thought that I thought that maybe it was just kind of common. I thought everybody was just getting like a film reel, maybe at that point, because everyone in Hollywood would have that kind of setup in their home, wouldn't they? Um, but no, I think this was like the first time that that was happening. So before the screener, did they have special showings for a kind of they just members? did that, but you had to go somewhere. And um, so here you could just like watch it at home. And what do they do now? Oh, there's like they send them, they send them like the link to stuff. A secure um, link or, 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 like, or like they were sitting in DVDs. And then they do have like kind of like screenings where like the actors are there to talk about it or whatever. Um, it's a big, it's a big like, Sons of Lambs had like no budget for like promoting the Oscars. Like now they pump in a, a 50, $100 million into these Oscar campaigns. Like Orion didn't have any of that. So they just had to like, they had this video and that's it. Right. And it paid off big for them. Yeah. Yeah, it paid off big. Jonathan Demme was not a prolific director, was he? No. He did, you know, Philadelphia after this. Okay, so that was his follow up? Yeah. And then he does, I think, The Manchurian Candidate. Maybe that's later, much later. But then he does Rachel Getting Married. Um, I liked The Manchurian Candidate. I remember thinking Denzel was really great in that. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is great. Rachel Getting Married was great. Yeah, and that's a real kind of traumatic watch. You know, just kind of like everything's kind of falling apart. Anything bad happening will be happening in this movie. Like, yeah, that, yeah, it's, I'm looking. Yeah, he didn't, he did some shorts and documentary stuff. Did he do, he was really into music, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he has like some music documentaries, but. Okay. Some Neil Young stuff, it looks like. Um, Truth About Charlie. Is that a Mark Wahlberg movie? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. He did Beloved, that Oprah movie. Oh. It was, I think, meant to be huge. It was supposed to be meant to be huge, and then kind of bombed. And Did we see that together? No, I saw that at the theater. I didn't see it. I remember thinking it was like I did not understanding it. I thought it was strange. Mm-hmm. Um, can't imagine anybody else from the time being uh, Clarice, uh, even Scott Glenn. So I, as far as I remember, the only other movie I'd seen with Scott Glenn was Urban Cowboy. When uh-huh. He's like abusive and eats the worm in the tequila, <laughs> and so I was kind of like refreshed to see him not like a total jerk in the mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he really looks kind of like a 1950s FBI guy in this movie. His hair is like all slicked and always wearing kind of the trench coat. I mean, he's or, and like real... suspenders and stuff like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's definitely like this kind of stereotypical looking law enforcement. I guy. like that. They didn't want anybody to look like, I guess, modern for the times. Everything's like very classical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to talk about Migs? Yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about Migs. Because that was another upsetting thing when she comes in and and it's kind of muffled. Again, some restraint. Like, I remember for a long time, I don't even know that I knew what he was saying. No, until, no yeah. And, and she repeats it. And then 
when he does it, I think I probably asked my parents, what, what, what was that? And they probably said spit or something. And you know, for a long time, I thought it was spit or which would be disgusting, which would be terrifying. Oh. It warrants the reaction. Um, sure. And then when you find out later that it's, that it's semen, See? you're just like, oh my God. And it, like, just like. It's a, you don't know where I've been, Lou, experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's horrible. Like honestly, her reaction seems a little understated when you realize what it really is. Yeah. Like that would have warranted her saying, "I'm out of here. <laughs> There's no way I'm sticking around for this." Yeah, I'm I'm definitely I'm, I I don't want to do anything else. I want to just look, let me finish my classes and that's it. I'm not doing any more of this BS. Yeah, I need to go home and take a shower immediately. Yeah. And see what happens. Uh, I feel like the book probably gives us a lot more about Migs. He had multiple personalities, right? Schizophrenic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We probably get more details on Migs. And then, and then Lecter gets him to hang, kill himself. Do you think that's because of what he did to Clarice? That's absolutely why. Okay. Yeah. So he's feeling protected. Cause like, cause, yeah, because like Crawford says. Yeah, um, he swallowed his own tongue. Like, Lecter had been talking to him through the wall, like, all afternoon. And and they could hear Miggs crying. And so um, so Lecter was like, no, this isn't, you're not going to treat her like this. Yeah. Why? Why do you think that is? I think it goes back to why are we rooting for Lecter? And it's like, because he's kind of protecting her. It's because uh-huh. he's trying to take care of her. And we want that with our character. We want her to be taken care of. Someone to be in her corner. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good that's a good observation. He doesn't even really get upset with her when he finds out that she scammed him on the deal. You know that she just invented they invented yeah. this. He, he mostly blames Crawford. Yeah. With her, he's like, "You came up with the Anthrax Island, uh. right?" And she's like, "Yes." He's like, "That was a nice touch." He may have known that she was full of shit on that. The whole time? I think I think maybe, yeah. I think maybe. So, I mean, it's like, so it no surprising. one's going to give me this kind of deal. And I'm just going to go with it, and I'm going to play I'm gonna play this game. Yeah. So then, okay, so then if he knows that it's all bogus to begin with, he's doing it for her. Yeah. He wants to know more about her, and, uh, well, let's talk about counseling and therapy assuming you always had him on a good day where he's not like trying to harm you yeah would it be good to have a a counselor who's that insightful oh yeah oh yeah i mean that's one thing that i was thinking when she's talking to him he's like asking very pointed questions and he tells her like don't lie to me because i'll know and i thought i wonder how often a counselor says that a counselor does not i don't think a counselor says that really at all don't lie to me because I'll know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It seems like that might be a good trait in a counselor. Like, let's not BS each other. Let's get to it. Yeah. I can help you if you'll let me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even quid pro quo. And this is just me being young when I saw it. I'd never heard that phrase before <laughs> in my life until I saw this movie. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the doggy bag? What are you taking home from Sons of the Lambs? 
So very strong female lead, uh, perfect casting, iconic movie, real smart movie. Um, And that some villains you end up rooting for. You know, it'd be interesting on a, on a bigger scale to look and see, like, was there a tide shift that came after this movie of the anti-hero? Um, the 80s, maybe, maybe this, maybe in, in some ways it may have cl- kind of ended that chapter in the 80s. In the 80s, a hero was a hero. And you, you always knew who the hero was. And this movie kind of flips that. I mean, yeah, Clarice is the hero and you want her to do, you want her to win, but you also want Hannibal to win. I mean, you know, at the, that, that final scene when he says, I'm having an old friend for dinner. Don't you kind of want to cheer him on? Yeah, that's like, it. I think you're, I, I think everyone in the theater was like, Oh, um, which is nuts because really what we're, nobody would say it, but we're all, we're all like relieved that he's going to brutally murder and eat Dr. Childen. And did did you read that they had that scene? Like that was going to be the ending, like him all tied up. Um, I'm having a friend for dinner and then like over there's Chilton all tied up, but they were like, that's a step too far. That's too much. Like we want it just to be this little kind of winking deal. And we're going to leave it that we're going to right. have this like great kind of last shot of like the sunset where he's at and Hannibal in the world. Right. Yeah. And again, Jonathan Demi's restraint to go that route rather than showing us everything. Uh, so I think doggy bag, you know, trying to make it more like broader principle based that restraint is restraint is powerful. When done right. Yeah. What about you? The movie is not showboaty at all. And it I think that's why it works. I think if Jonathan Demi was a horror director, if that's what his career was staked on, we might see all this stuff that like was that that has the restraint that like we don't see. And that's the stuff that makes it great because he wasn't this horror director. It makes this film, it takes this film up another level that like most films don't get to. I mean, this movie is a perfect film. I think we were asking this a few years ago, like, what's a perfect film? I think it sounds the land is a perfect film. And it's all in your head and like it, it sticks with you. Incredible filmmaking, powerhouse performances. R.I.P. Orion Pictures. Did Orion, what did they do after this movie? I mean, it's like bankrupt. Yeah, they're done. So they made they made good money on this movie, and then that was the end of it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, sucks. Yeah, <laughs> and you know Anthony Hopkins, I think probably wasn't nominated for as many Oscars as maybe thought he would be after this movie. Uh, just because the movie's so powerful, you kind of expect like, gosh, every other year or so he's going to be nominated for an Oscar. Um, did was it what when was his peak? Oh, this is he, it. This is it. He won an Oscar, was it a year ago, two years ago? For the father. Okay, yeah. 
But I mean, but I mean, but but that's kind of a footnote, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is the this is thing. it. This is yeah. This is his tombstone. Yeah. Does this keep him for the next ten years of winning another Oscar? Because you know he was nominated for Nixon. Yeah. But but Nixon's not Hannibal Lecter. Um, he was nominated for. Uh, well, I don't know. But he's done. But you know, he's done. He did some other significant roles. I don't know. I think he. I don't know. Is this, I don't does know. this overshadow anything he does afterwards for a while? It probably overshadows everything the rest of his career. I think that probably every role he has has a little bit of Hannibal Lecter in it. And he's. You know what? If you have like a hell of a role like this, yeah, dine out on it. I mean. Yeah. I mean, like, and I think I would rather have this Oscar win than, like, two movies, two or three Oscars for movies that no one's seen, that don't really care about, that don't resonate 30 years later. In 30 years, is anybody even talking about The Father? No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, in a way, it's similar to Tom Hanks' run in the, when he did Philadelphia and Forrest Gump back-to-back. After Forrest Gump, he probably can't win an Oscar for some period of years. Yeah. Because oh, you did this iconic performance yeah. that people always remember and it's going to always overshadow everything. Yeah. You went back to back. Yeah. Yeah. Have there in, when was the last time there was someone who put in either like Jodie Foster or Anthony uh, Hopkins where they really had, one for the ages powerhouse performance. McLovin? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer. No, no we should we should end it on that point. That that is the, the, the best answer that can be given to that question. McLovin. <laughs> oh, classic. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Chad. It's always a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. And everyone else will be taking a little break after four years of mac and cheese movies until we'll be back in 2023. Until then, you can get you can check out our over 100 episodes of mac and cheese movies anywhere you get your podcasts. 100 episodes. That's amazing. I, I have like I have like something for you to say on the way out. You ready? I'm ready. This is the line. Best thing for him, his therapy was going nowhere. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. You, re- you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Best thing for him, his therapy was going nowhere. Mac and cheese, out. <laughs>